HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Needs. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, and sakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is Michael Majors, who is a documentary photographer and journalist who splits his time between New York City and Austin, Texas. And he's a frequent collaborator with the highly acclaimed publisher Rose and Kingdoms and served as the lead photographer on their award-winning books Rice Noodle Fish and Grape Olive Pick. Uh, by the way, the legendary author and television host, Anthony Bodin, was the partner and investor in Roads and Kingdoms. Michael's images are exhibited both internationally and in the U.S. and have appeared in the wide range of digital and print publications, including Time, Smithsonian, Vogue Italia, CNN's Explore Parts Unknown, and the New York Times, to name a few. And Michael is also known for his unique and deeply insightful work that captures Japanese artisans called shokunin. So today we'll discuss how Michael got into documentary photography, what part of Japan attracts him as a photographer, the essence of the shokunin mindset, his intriguing work that features modern life of Japan in the dark, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write that review. We truly appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start our conversation with Michael Majors. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the show. Hi, Akiko. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have to say I'm a, I'm a great admirer of uh, what you do here, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be on. Thank you. 
Thank you. So uh, I recall <laughs> we met uh, 10 years ago, and I've been really watching what you're doing. It's just so unique. So congratulations. Thank you. And uh, look, obviously, uh, that's a two-way street. So I think it's so cool what you've developed here with Japan Eats. The guests that you have on are folks that uh, I always admire and I'm so curious about. So it's, uh, it's really cool and an honor to get a chance to sit in the seat as well. Mm, right. You've been always my target. So finally, <laughs> there are plenty of uh, matters to discuss today. Um, so to get to know you for listeners, uh, first of all, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and uh, I grew up in a, in a uh, you know, sort of a unique situation in that my mom uh, is, you know, Brooklyn, Italian, first generation, uh, Sicilian, um, but my dad is from the Midwest. And my dad is not an adventurous eater at all. My father could live on Mexican food and burgers for the rest of his life, uh, which is actually sort of the direction he's gone. He'd be quite happy. But, you know, my mom's family was this very classic Sicilian, you know, loud, boisterous uh, experience. And I grew up going to New York every summer and spending time with them. Uh, and I had two uncles that were chefs. They ran sort of a red sauce Italian restaurant in Long Island. Um, with sort of questionable funding uh, from the local influentials. And um, <laughs> they were, you know, they really like from a young age, they would take me into the kitchen. And it was a pizzeria on one side and then like a white tablecloth kind of red sauce joint on the other side. So I remember like, you know, having my mind kind of blown um, with that food at a very young age and just always knowing that I wanted to have food as part of my life in some way, shape or form. And I think as I got older and was exposed to, you know, more cultures and um, just more experiences in general, food was always a uh, gateway or a window through which to understand, um, you know, people and experiences. And there's nothing like sharing a meal, that conviviality to really break down barriers, even if the language is completely different, the culture is completely different. So, uh, I think those early experiences with that, you know, very outgoing Italian side of the family set the stage for, for a lot of my um, curiosity around these things as I grew older. Mm, right. Well, I cannot agree more. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing now, it's all about uh, the food. That's a great medium to get to know people. So, yeah, I can agree more. So, and it's an interesting transition for the next question. So you are a documentary photographer. Uh, so how did you get into photography, uh, first of all? So my dad um, it was, is sort of a, a, an artist and, and um you know, he, he started out his life as a businessman, and when he retired, he really focused on, on art, he paints, and he sculpts. But photography was something that he had done from a young age. And when I was like eight or nine, he gave me my first camera. And, you know, it just was something that, that um, I sort of took to, but didn't really use it like specifically as a means of expression. It was really more kind of documenting the world around me. Um, and I, I actually uh, didn't go to school for photography or journalism or anything like that. I ended up, you know, uh, uh, studying international relations. And then I, I went and got a graduate degree that you know, sort of focused more on macroeconomics and um, went back to business school and went to New York to work in the commodity business, believe it or not. Um, and that initially took me to, you know, rural uh 
places like uh, Chiapas in Mexico, for example, where I was importing and exporting cocoa. And I hadn't picked up a camera in a while, but I was you know, working in and around uh, a lot of um, uh, small uh, farmers and, and a lot of indigenous uh, folks uh, around that area, um, you know, sort of Mayan descendants at some level, right? And, and uh, I, I started to rediscover a love for for telling those stories visually, even while working, you know, kind of as a corporate drone. And very slowly, photography sort of took over my life. Um, you know, it, it had been something that I was always kind of practicing, but it wasn't until I was working in this kind of high-pressure environment that it became really a, a means of expression and the means of exploring the world around me in a bit more detail. Um, so, you know, it's a bit of a long-winded answer, right? Uh, it was my dad who kind of got me into it, but my life really took a lot of twists and turns before I stepped away from, from that corporate job and focused on photography, you know, full-time, 100%. Mm, right. Well, uh, because your dad went into the art side of, you know, photography, but then you chose to um, become a documentary photographer. So why is that? You kind of answered, but then I just really want to dig into that point. No, it's a great question. You know, and I think it's funny because, I mean, I love art photography and abstract photography, um, but I'm not a particularly abstract person in the way I, I seem see the world, I guess, in some ways. I really find this, this poetry in, in everyday life. And I think that the, you know, essence of, of um, that energy, that kinetic energy on the street or, you know, being able to explore one's curiosity around other cultures and other experiences uh, through a camera, you know, it's, it's an incredible passport. It's really a skeleton key that um, opens up these hidden doors uh, and, you know, for me, like, I, I've just always been a really curious person around the exploration of the things that, that maybe most people don't get to see. So documentary became this kind of like natural extension of that curiosity. And I, and I was really, really fortunate to fall in with the team at Roads and Kingdoms that put this huge premium on, on great storytelling. And um, the sense that going a little bit deeper was really valuable, not just doing a drive-by, so to speak. So I, mm -hmm. I think I just really gravitate to that way of seeing the world, being embedded, being intimate, you know, having the chance to really experience things alongside your subjects. I've always kind of had this feeling that um, I never wanted to work at a distance from my subject. So I always work with like very, you know, wide angle lenses, kind of have to get close. You know, if I'm photographing a surfer, I want to be in the water with them. Um, you know, I spent years kind of working on this long-term documentary piece around tattooing in Japan, traditional tattooing. And, you know, I was like 40 years old. I never thought I would get a tattoo. And well, here I am, you know, spending years working with these amazing traditional tattoo artists and one of them offers to tattoo me. And I felt like, yeah, I mean, I should have that experience. I should know what the uh, subject is experiencing so that I can better tell that story. So I love how documentary puts you in the middle of the action. Um, and, and I've never mm -hmm. had the desire to, you know, photograph conflict or be shot at or anything like that, obviously, but trying to find ways to tell those stories that allow you that really intimate access so the viewer can experience it in the same way that I'm experiencing it 
is something that is really, really important to me. Mm, right. Um, sounds like you observe and probably reflect on yourself. Like you want to be a part of it because you wanted to experience a part of their lives, that kind of thing, because documentary gives that opportunity. Yes, that's absolutely right. You know, it's, it's really exciting to be let in to these spaces. And, you know, the camera can be like a, a skeleton key. I mean, obviously, you have to have the right attitude. You know, you, you, you really can't take it for granted. Um, but the opportunity to see behind these closed doors, and especially in places like Japan, where so much of the things that are really, really interesting happen, you know, outside of, of the view, the obvious view, right? Uh, you know, the opposite is a place like Cuba where like life kind of happens on the street. Everything's really just out in front. Um, but in Japan, you know, getting into those private areas is really special. You know, it's really um, a sign of trust and commitment and the belief that uh, you're going to keep coming back. Mm, interesting. But you definitely need to have the trust being established to get into the Japanese side. But once it's there, you never lose it in a way, unless you do something really bad. So that's interesting. Um, but, you know, what makes you excited about documenting lives in different cultures? You could have done, I mean, you went to Mexico, that's probably um, the earlier inspiration, but you keep capturing um, different cultures through your photography, right? Yeah, it's, you know, I, um, when I was in college, I got really interested in anthropology. It was like the sort of second thing that I studied. And I was fascinated with this idea of sort of being embedded um, and being, you know, admitted to the tribe at some level to be able to document things in kind of an honest way. And like, look, obviously, you know, uh, the, the, prospect of just dropping in and documenting something from the outside perspective can be a bit problematic, right? Like there's all kinds of challenges with that uh, in terms of the way that we view other cultures and not wanting to impose our own judgments on that. I, For me, with a camera, like it, it's not my job to, to judge. It's merely my job to be present and to allow the images to tell people's stories. And you know, I, I think personally that that um, the intimacy of that, the trust that comes along with that, uh, and the chance to, again, be present in some of these experiences that, that really most people wouldn't have a chance to, to see or be a part of or um, really fully view in an honest way is, you know, it's a responsibility but it's also uh, something that is really beautiful and really uh, made an impression on me from a, from a very early age and from a very early stage as a photographer as well. I just felt like that was where I wanted to be. Um, and I know that, that you know, with that comes uh, the responsibility of bringing that image and the, telling those stories in a way that is, that is true to the experience itself, right? And, and um, you know, it, it has to be uh as as honest and free of baggage as possible but i think getting to experience 
what my subjects are experiencing is it's a really high honor. You know, I, I love that. And um, it's the kind of thing that, that has sort of driven me throughout my work. Um, and also to like keep trying to get more access and to, you know, find those experiences that, um, that I really want to document mm. and tell those right. stories. Hmm. Sounds like uh, your lens uh, makes you more kind of objective and widens your view to the culture. It does. And I think, I think um, you know, everybody has a different approach to these things. And, and I do kind of fall in love with my subjects at some level, right? Like I just have a very sort of an empathetic eye uh, towards things. And, and um, you know, I may not be always as objective as I want to be in, in that sense. Uh, you know, I'm not unflinching. Uh, like an Avedon, for example, right? I, I do tend to, you know, pick things that I'm really interested in exploring and connect with these people and form long relationships. You know, most of the places that I go are places that I've been going for years and uh, have built up these really close relationships through that trust. Um, and it's what allows me to have the access that I have. But it, it also means that, you know, I, I feel very close to the people that I've been able to um to document and spend time with. Mm, interesting. Yeah, we'll discuss your book later, but uh, one of the pictures you really caught me is a lone Sally man standing on a train station and looks kind of sad, but I really felt your affection towards the subject. So yeah, I totally understand what you say. Um, but, you know, you have featured Japan a lot in your work. So what brought you to Japanese culture? in the first place? Uh, it's a great question. And, and I mean, obviously such a rabbit hole, right? Uh, so <laughs> I, I went, I went to Japan for the first time as a tourist in 2012. And, you know, it was kind of before Google maps and, you know, iPhones and, and, uh, I was totally overwhelmed and I was really, really fortunate to get connected to a guy called Shinji Nohara, who's kind of known as the Tokyo fixer. And like Shinji's the guy that if you are a chef or um, really want to go deep in Japan, he is the person that can get you there. And typically, you know, he was like featured in, you know, all these TV shows and like took, you know, Anthony Bourdain around and that kind of stuff. And back in 2012, I don't think the, the, tourism in Japan had really exploded the way it has, a, you know, over the, pre over the past decade. And so Shinji agreed to sort of take me and a friend who was traveling with me out for a couple of days. And, um, you know, the first thing he did was took me or took us to a, uh, a coffee shop in Omotesando uh, run by a guy called uh, Katsuji Daibo. And Daibo, you know, is, the shop is now closed, uh, gentrification and and, uh, and such kind of the building changed hands and was demolished. But he'd been in the same place for 40 some odd years and he made coffee, you know, that took like 20 minutes before you could, you know, have your cup. And he, he, he roasted it by hand and everything was done to order. And I had worked in the coffee business, right? I mean, I started my career as a coffee trader I used to cup coffee for like two or three hours every afternoon, you know, after the markets had closed. This was in the early 2000s. I thought I knew coffee. And I tried this, this cup from Daibo and it just like exploded my brain. And it was the first experience that I had with kind of that shokunin ethos. Um, and I told Shinji, I said, I'm coming back. And he's like, yeah, everyone says that, but most people don't come back. 
And I did. I just, you know, I just kind of kept going back. And, you know, the, the second time I went back was to work on Rice Noodle Fish with, with Matt Goulding, the you know, incredible writer. And, you know, we had kind of this blessing from, from Tony Bourdain to go and just explore and, and work on this book on the intersection of food and culture. And it was like, from that point on, I was completely hooked. Wow. So that's amazing. It's like life-changing uh, experience at the coffee shop. And that's the beginning. <laughs> it, it really, like, it's such a, like, it seems like such a simple, almost silly thing. Um, but it was like a gateway drug, you know, it's the best, the best way I can describe it. And, um, mm. you know, it, 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 uh, it kills me that Daibo isn't there anymore, obviously, but his impact on me cannot be overstated. Mm. Right. So, um, I mean, the, you captured something in Japan, but how do you, what, what is the essence of Japanese culture that attracts you? ever since then? You know, it's something that I've thought about a lot. And I, I've never I've never romanticized Japanese culture in that sort of otaku sense, right? Like, it's a challenging place in many ways. And Japan is a very hard place to be different. Um, it, you know, that idea that the nail that stands out gets hammered down is a real thing. And, um, to do something different in Japan, if you're Japanese, is, is really a challenge. That said, I have never felt more welcomed, um, nor have I ever felt a deeper connection to this cultural appreciation for intentionality and attention to detail, um, like I discovered and I felt in Japan. And I, I, it was as if there was this uh, inherent appreciation for the same things that really drive me and the same things that I care about just permeated so much of the culture. And I, I just was like endlessly inspired and, and it continues to be endlessly inspiring. And I, you know, I just feel um, like every time I, I land in Tokyo, I kind of feel like I'm home in a weird way. There's a smell, there's a sense of, of calm, um, and there is this great sense of anticipation of, you know, what am I going to find and experience and, and see this time? You know, it is a place that rewards persistence and you could travel there. You could live in Tokyo your entire life and still barely scratch the surface of, of what's in that city. And I think that is just such an exciting and um, exhilarating uh, idea for, for someone who's a curious person and, and, you know, that aligns so well with this kind of deep appreciation of, um, you know, again, I, I like to call it sort of an intentionality. I feel like things are done with purpose. Mm, right. That's interesting. I mean, uh, it's like you can just have another whole episode about that intentionality uh, or what history I think Japanese people cultivated. And if you just land in Tokyo or any airport, the energy is kind of smoothed out. Like there's, there's no chaos like in New York. And then it's like the energy flows differently. And once you crack the surface, there's so much going on underneath. And I think that's Japanese culture. And that's what you feel, that intentionality 
um, underneath the surface. So anyway, so maybe you can think about that intentionally episode in the near future. But uh, now I will take a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll dive into Mike's deeply insightful work that features Japanese artisans called Shokunin. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese on HRN, Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Aki Katayama. My guest today is Michael Majors, who is a documentary photographer and a journalist based in New York City and Austin, Texas. He's known for his unique and deeply insightful work that captures Japanese culture and society. So, um, you have featured shokunin in Japan, and the idea and existence of shokunin is essential in Japanese culture. And it's interesting. I think intentionality really corresponds to this mindset of shokunin, um, to me anyway. So um, so you have captured beautiful and stunningly lively image of shokunin in 2014, uh, which our listeners can see on your website. Uh, it's mpmajors.com. So uh, first of all, let me ask you, how do you define shokunin? I mean, it's a great question. And I think it's one that um, you, know, you have to be a little bit delicate with, right? Because this, I, I think there's the, it would be easy to say that um, striving for perfection would be part of that sort of shokunin ethos. But I, I really, I don't think that's it, right? For me, like uh, a shokunin is someone who has really dedicated their life to the refinement of something. Right. It's, it's not about perfection. It's about this sort of incremental improvement, really doing the small things well. And, and this could be anything from a, a you know, living national treasure ceramicist to the guy that is sweeping the steps on the subway or stocking the shelves at the local family mart. Right. Um, it is this idea that you never really know how high the mountain is. And so you just kind of keep climbing. And, and it, it has come up, you know, in so many conversations that I've had over the years with, with craftsmen in particular, uh, that what, what gets them up in the morning is the idea that they could be just a little bit better today. And I think in the West, we put so much stock in these big milestones, right? Like when I get to X or when I get the promotion or when I buy the house or when I, you know, whatever it is, and, and we kind of get there and then we realize that we've got to focus on the next big thing. And what I saw, you know, time and time and time and time again, you know, across Japan and in workshops all over the country 
really this idea of doing the small things well. And if you do that, the big things kind of take care of themselves. And there's a real lightness and joy in that, um, at least as I've seen it. And again, not to romanticize or say that all of these things lead to, you know, somehow a happier life or anything like that. But I love this idea that you have a person who has really dedicated their entire life to refining something, right? And carrying on that tradition. Right. It's, it's interesting because shokunin people, they're masters. Many of them are masters, but they hate to be called masters because there's no end to perfect something they're doing. And uh, I think that's the mindset, right? You are a permanent student and you keep refining and refining, which is the process and is a part of their life. And um, there are terms like autism, craftsman, um, but there's no right way to describe shokunin. So I think your definition is really inspiring to me. Thank you. And I, I completely agree with that. You know, every time I would ask, you know, the question, how long did it take for you to master something? I would always be corrected. Well, I'm not a master. My master, he was a master, right? But I'm still learning. And this would be someone who was like 90 years old and had been doing whatever the thing was for like 70 years of their life. And they're like, well, you know, I still get up in the morning and I'm trying to figure out how to make it a little bit better. I love that. I absolutely love that. Mm, that spirit and the mindset makes the master real master, right? Permanent, the never ending. You never get satisfied. Yeah. At that. It's so cool. Right. Mm, right. So, um, so what is special about Japanese shokunin to you and um, uh, what are you trying to communicate to your audience through your images? You know, I think in terms of answering the question about what is special, the output is incredible, right? We, we live in this world that is so dominated by, by single serving disposable things. You know, what initially drew me to that shokunin ethos was, was less around, say, that, you know, Jiro Dreams of Sushi kind of food shokunin type of thing, which is obviously beautiful and interesting. And you hear the word shokunin is, is mentioned so many times in that movie. But I actually got really interested in it, um, in the idea and the, the culture surrounding um, the idea through objects. And this, this concept of a person being able to create something that was of the highest level without using necessarily modern technology and really kind of imbuing that object with their spirit, right? The idea that something handmade kind of retains the spirit of the maker. And I think as we as, we as a society um, are, are, are more and more inundated with uh, disposable things, um, things that have that heartbeat are more and more valuable. And I wanted to create sort of a visual record of the people that were that were practicing these crafts and keeping these traditions alive. And in many cases, you know, the 13th or 14th or 15th generation um, carrying on a tradition, working with techniques and equipment that might be hundreds of years old uh, and who typically wouldn't be seen. Their objects would be seen, but they themselves would not be seen. And, and, and so much of the photography that I had looked at um, around this work was always kind of process driven or showed sort of the hands making things. 
And I really wanted to focus on the person behind the object and, and create more of like an environmental portrait of the spirit of that person who was, you know, going through this act of creation so that we could also be taken into that space, into that workshop uh, and see the difficulties, the, you know, the intensity, the concentration, the pressure, like all of these things that go into creating something that, that really has that, um, you know, the, the, that beauty and meaning behind it. There, there was a, a guy that I photographed uh, called uh, Inui Manji, who's the Ningen Kokuo, the living national treasure for Arite Yaki, which is a, a type of uh, ceramics made in southern Japan. I actually saw him in December. He's almost 90 now. But uh, when I interviewed him and photographed him 10 years ago, he told me something that really, really struck me. Uh, he said that, you know, I, I'd asked him this question. I basically said, well, how long did it take you to sort of you know, become proficient at this. He said, well, you know, it took me about 10 years to really learn technique, but it's taken me my entire life to learn how to transmit my soul into my hands. And like, there's nothing more beautiful than that at some level. And to be able to hold a piece of his work, you feel that. So I want to try and communicate that. It's not easy, but if I, if the photo is successful, you kind of see that transference. Does that make sense? Mm, totally. Right. Um, it's a, I think if you start uh, being able to use certain equipment, you feel like it becoming a part of your hand. But I think whenever I see those shokuni people, they are part of it. <laughs> it's, it's like there's no division between what they're doing. And um, I think the work really shows like Ningen Kok for um, the national treasure. Of human being, so yeah, it's amazing. And um, well, you all have uh, amazing images. So maybe you can just uh, give us some examples of the shokunins you captured. Uh, again, it's it's on your website, um, mpmajors.com. And uh, it's just I cannot stop just seeing these details and each shokunin. So tell us some about some of those people. You know, I, I think they're they're all you know. There's always they're all amazing, kind of in their own in their own unique way, right? And every one of these experiences has left a mark on me in, in, at some level. Um, you know, I can think of a few that that maybe transcended. Uh, there's there absolutely these these sessions and these experiences where it just sort of felt like we'd gone to another level. I think having the chance to photograph uh, Daibo, the coffee master for the book Rice Noodle Fish and, and for an article that Matt Goulding wrote for Reds and Kingdoms was really amazing. It took a long time to to get him to, you know, let us in for that. And I, I love those images. I just think they're I think they're really cool. I mean you just you just see the joy in what he's doing. Um, diving with the Ama uh, in um, in Toba near near Mie in the Ise Shrine. So the Ama are, you know, a dwindling group of, of older women who still free dive for high value sea, seafood, uh, abalone and, and sea urchin and these sorts of things. But, you know, thousands of years ago, they were kind of the, the pearl divers and were uh, immortalized in um, various forms of woodblock printing. And there's, you know, very famous images from the 1950s of them as well. But I got a chance to actually go and spend time in the water with them. And these women were, you know, in their 60s and were just so cool, amazing people. 
and what that experience still ranks as one of the most profound experiences of my life. Um, there's a there's a woodworker who is in um, Shiga uh, on Lake Biwa or near Lake Biwa outside of Kyoto uh, called Nakagawa Shuji. His dad is a living national treasure, but but his work has been you know displayed at the Venice Biennale, was heavily featured at the Noma pop-up in Kyoto this, this year as well. And he and I just had one of those sessions in his tiny little workshop that just like, you know, redolent of the cedar and cypress that he works in, you know, and, and, and it was just such an incredible give and take. It was like, you know, we were dancing. It was so cool. And I love those, I love those photos. Um, I mean, those are like just off the top of my head. Those are those are a few, and I think I, I also have to give some credit to the uh, the knife makers in Sakai City, which is about twenty minutes outside of Osaka, a place really uh, well known for its chef's knives. They were the first entry point for me on the craft side. Uh, we were working on rice noodle fish and kind of had the idea that if we were going to focus on culinary shokunin, it might also be interesting to do a little sidebar interstitial on the folks that, that make these beautiful knives. And I was uh, invited down to Sakai to go and photograph in a quote unquote factory. And in my mind, you know, a factory is like what we think of in the West, right? It's, it's a whole bunch of folks, you know, on an assembly line making knives. And, you know, the first thing, first place they take me is into this tiny little workshop with one guy and he's working on equipment that's like 150 years old. And he's turning out, you know, some of the most incredible pieces of cutlery you've ever seen. And I said, you know, this is it. Like, I get it. This is one of the, this is, is so beautiful. So those experiences, they continue to really inspire me. You know, I always have a smile on my face when I, when I think about them. And it's, again, it's just such an honor to be in the space watching someone create, you know, um, the act of creation and documenting it, whether it's in a music studio or in an art studio or in the back of the kitchen, it's being present at that act um, is really special. We, we oftentimes only see the output. And so to be part of the process is, um, it's always just a privilege. Mm, right. Uh, I think it's um, because you're so um, with them mentally, and uh, I think they were pleased to work with you. I think whenever I see your photographs, um, there's an energy communicated between you and the subjects. So, yeah, it's amazing that how um, rare uh, experiences you had in Japan. And uh, I can't wait to see more. And uh, so um, another work uh, that we can see now. So your book titled Independent Mysteries that came out in 2020. Uh, what is the theme of the book? And why did you choose the title, Independent Mysteries? Well, you know, it's interesting because when we talk about the documentary work, which was, you know, primarily assignment work, things I was doing for, you know, for other publications, there's a, there's a flip side to that, which is that I'm a human and I'm there kind of living my life and I'm experiencing, you know, these incredible sort of moments of, of intimacy in the documentary space, but I'm also feeling a little bit like disconnected or discombobulated as someone who's traveling and someone who's oftentimes in, you know, strange places, places that can 
make you feel a little bit disconnected. And in 2019, I was doing this kind of archiving project, and I realized that over the past decade, I had this this deep body of work that kind of, regardless of location or time, had a lot of somatic connection to it. And it's really kind of a, a diary of my inner life. It's very personal work, you know. Um, and the title is really a reflection of this idea that each one of these images is is kind of its own little story, right? And that um, like a film still. And it really is up to the viewer to kind of interpret what that story is. We don't know what happened in the moments before or the moments after. And it's it's one of the really amazing things about photography. I love the idea of photographs that are going to, you know, ask more questions than they answer. And it's kind of the antithesis of documentary at some level, right? We'd use documentary to sort of answer these questions. But in that abstract space, in that personal space, in that space that is a reflection of my own self or subconscious, um, you're working in like one two fiftieth of a second. It's not like painting a painting or sculpting something where you can, you know, really take time to shape things. It is a subconscious act of what the eye is drawn to. And I found that during this period of life, I was very drawn to this tension between sort of connection and disconnection. And the the book is really a collection of images that that examine that. Um, and there, you know, the idea of independent mysteries is that each one of these images is kind of its own little story uh, that the viewer can um, create on their own, right? Because I don't title them and I don't, you know, put any information on location. Uh, it really should be uh, a relationship between the viewer and the image, and that story gets created from your own personal experience. Mm, right. So um, one thing, you know, you feature in the book, uh, Independent Mysteries, you feature ordinary Japanese scenes at um, many at night and somewhat dark side of the society. So why did you choose these themes? You know, in other words, like, how do you pick the subjects? Well, you know, the interesting thing with most of that work is that it, it, it's, not a lot of it was kind of consciously chosen at the time, right? They were kind of reflections of my own emotions in that in that moment. And, you know, especially the images on the street. Obviously, there's more images in there around, you know, people that have passed through my lives and more intimate, intimate moments. But the street photography in there in particular, which is a lot of those scenes, um, are those little moments that maybe if I didn't photograph it, you wouldn't ever notice it or you wouldn't know it exists and they're almost like self-portraits of my emotional state in that moment uh and oftentimes i was feeling a bit isolated or a bit off kilter uh and for whatever reason that really drove what i was drawn to what my eye was drawn to you know and i think that um that it, it is kind of the flip side of the coin of that documentary space, right? I mean, it's the, you know, it's the, the documentary space is like the tip of the iceberg, the thing that you see, you know, obviously. And then the emotional content behind all of that 
exists in its own space. It exists, you know, with me personally, and it could be, you know, it could be that I'm feeling isolated or it could be that there's weight from the, from, you know, the subject that I'm documenting, whatever it happens to be, but they were playing out subconsciously and, it, and those emotions and those sensations reflect, you know, the things that I'm drawn to when I'm photographing. And you'll see in the book, there's a, there's a lot of that, that theme, that, you know, sense of isolation or that sense of, you know, looking for connection, being a little bit disconnected. Um, and yeah, it just, it, it really was a, uh, sort of a 10 year, um, theme across so many different places and, and so many different assignments that it, it sort of bubbled to the surface. So, you know, when we edited the book, obviously we're trying to, you know, create, um, a selection of images that are going to resonate across that you know through line but the images themselves really are are driven by that you know emotional content that emotional experience and that i think that sort of subconscious act of creation i know it's a bit of a it's a bit of an artistic answer right like you know i, I tend to be a lot more literal but i found the book to be as much as anything a personal diary um that that was uh really more of what i was experiencing um, not so much what what I was documenting. Mm, right. So, I mean, the the most of our listeners probably haven't um, seen the book Independent Mysteries, but I think to me, uh, what you're saying is so interesting, very emotionally kind of stirring and uh, kind of um, isolation. And um, the book uh, the book starts uh, from a poem with a poem of contrast, right? Like positive and negative. Um, something like a swing, both sides of um, life. And also, uh, you also, not just Japanese culture, you juxtapose Japan in completely different places like Haiti and Cuba. So what is the idea of the sharp contrast? It's interesting because there really, I think there's 20 some odd countries kind of represented in the book, although Japan definitely factors um, largest in terms of percentage of of, of images, uh, the literal contrast is really unintentional, right? At some level, location really doesn't matter as much as just that emotional experience. Um, and, and again, that's why I didn't want to title any of the images because I didn't want to create an impression. I wanted to let the narrative be driven by the, the viewer's experience, right? Um, it just happened to be that these were the places I was spending a lot of my time during that period, right? I was, you know, going to Cuba a lot, um, had been, had been doing a fair amount of work in Haiti, but Japan really was the place that, that I was going to, you know, two to three times a year over the, you know, the past like 10, 11 years. So it just naturally sort of bubbled to the surface in that way. But I think what is, what is more interesting is that, it didn't really matter where I was. I was kind of seeing the same thing regardless of, of the, the place itself. Mm, right. Or well, maybe for listeners, you can pick one image uh, you captured in Japan. Uh, what kind of scenes, uh, like visualize for listeners? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a funny thing about, I think, doing any sort of a, a, a book project or an art project, right? Like, you, you know, you get kind of sick of your own work because you've got to look at it over and over and over <laughs> again and make objective decisions about it. But there, I obviously have some favorites, uh, within the, within the book. And I think the, the cover photo, um, which 
is uh, of a salary man, you know, in a full suit with a briefcase, basically walking down a mountain path. Um, it still remains one of the most mysterious images, most mysterious experiences. Um, I was on uh, Yakushima Island, which is the, I think, furthest southernmost um, island in Japan. It's off the coast of Kagoshima, and it is a uh, like a UNESCO heritage site for the uh, oldest cedar trees in the world. But you know, it's just on a hike one day. I wasn't shooting anything. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't even going to bring a camera. I threw one in my bag just because I thought, well, you know, there might be some cool nature photography. And we're, you know, we're hiking up side of this mountain, and I look up, and this guy's just walking down the the path like he's commuting to the office. And just like pulled out the camera, got one snap of him from behind. And, and it's, it's a, an image that, you know, it's kind of become in some ways a signature photo uh, and one of my favorites because mm. we can create any story from that we want, positive, negative, you know, and it really highlights the idea that these little moments of absurdity and, uh, you know, craziness and and I think uh, you know cognitive dissonance are always happening around us. This was especially, mm. I think, obvious at some level, and I'm really glad I had the camera with me. Right, it's almost like uh, I don't know the word is right, but the mismatch or some why now? <laughs> I just yeah, yeah I like <laughs> it feels safe. Right, you know, it definitely. I've had people ask if it was a staged photo, and and like. You couldn't even fake it, right? Because it's so absurd at some level. Right. Yeah, and there was stunningly old um, woods out surrounding him, and he's just, uh, you know, like wrinkly suits, and uh, he's looking down, and it's like the, the steps are not so stable, and like we're just like, oh, where are you going? <laughs> it's very interesting. I really think, um, you know, this book, you require a lot of time to think, ponder, and reflect on yourself. So anyway, so so listeners, this is uh, Independent Mysteries, uh, came out in 2020. Uh, how do you pronounce the name of this uh, publisher? Hatia Kant. So it's a German oh. art book publisher. Um, they, uh, you know, fairly fairly well thought of. It's always great to print in Germany if you can. I think the, the quality of the printing in the book is uh, is great. And I think one of the really cool things about the book as well is that you know, I didn't want it to just solely be a focus on on me and my internal dialogue. And um, what I did is I actually took uh, sections of the book and I sent those sections to different collaborators, people I'd worked with over the years. And I basically said, look, if this stirs up anything in you, if this little selection of images uh, creates anything within you, then respond to it in some way, shape or form. And so, you know, folks wrote short stories and poems and um, uh, you know, monologues, there's some art, uh, all kinds of little interstitials that run throughout the book that, that come from some really interesting people as well. And I think that goes to this idea that, you know, these images beg for the creation of some story around them. Mm -hmm. Right. I like the poems too, like um, one of them, uh, let's see, Mitch Moxley, I was at home when I wasn't alone that I felt the most alone. And all those things that contrast or you're deep into uh, your kind of introspective mode and you really 
help people think that way by looking at those lone people and images. So, yeah, this is exciting. So, congratulations. Thank you so much. So, uh, so could you tell us about um, maybe for listeners who would like to explore your work further, what, where should we go? Is this the website or? Right. So, I mean, I, I do have sort of the social media stuff. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty inactive unless I'm, I'm working. Um, but my, you know, my Instagram is uh, M-P-M-A-G-E-R-S, uh, and my website is, is uh, M-P-M-A-G-E-R-S.com, so mpmajors.com. Um, there is, you know, sort of a selection of work on there. There are, uh, we have a few books left, which is, which is good. So I still have a few of those to sell if anyone's interested, and you can buy those on the website. And I just, you know, sign them and send them out. But yeah, those are probably the two best ways to get to know me a little bit better. Mm, okay. And uh, so the mpmajors.com, you can see listeners' independent mystery book. That's the mysterious man in the woods. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So, uh, so what are your plans and dreams? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's by far the hardest, <laughs> hardest question you've asked me this entire time. <laughs> you know, plan-wise, I am actually headed back to Japan in September. So... I'm working on a project with uh, the team from Roads and Kingdoms. Uh, they've started a sort of a high-end small group travel business called the League of Travelers. And we are taking some folks up to Hokkaido. It's a pretty cool trip. We're actually going to fly over to uh, Rishiri Island and spend some time with uh, the folks that harvest kombu there. It's kind of the, the best kombu in the world. So kind of curious to see some kombu shokunin. I'll be there for uh, two and a half weeks or so, and that should be a great trip. Obviously, looking forward to getting back to Japan. You know, for for me, there's always this abiding interest in you know design and, and craft and and makers. Um, anything that allows me to continue to explore that and document uh, those traditions, those techniques, you know, I want to keep pushing on. And you know, th- that could be expanding into other geographies. Um, Personally, I would, I would, you know, dream-wise, I would love to to take some of the inspiration that I found around the world and, um, you know, like remodel an old house or something like that, like maybe an old machia in Kyoto or uh, uh, something uh, that has some real character to it. I think that's a that's probably a, a good dream to have for uh, some time in my life. But you know, the for 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 a good part of my career, I spent a lot of time kind of trying to do the the more photojournalist route, which was a lot of pitching, you know, and a lot of rejection. And um, I think that the media landscape has, has shifted a lot over the past decade. Uh, and so, you know, I, I am a bit more focused on my own sort of personal work. Uh, I, I love just sort of falling into a city. And trying to, you know, get out on the street and document what I see, you know, it's, it's really pleasurable. And it's, it, you know, it's kind of banal at some level, right? Like, it's just, I love these little moments of intimacy. And we lost so much of that during the pandemic, you know, being masked up and not being able to, like, you know, being a little bit afraid of your fellow humans. And now that I've been out traveling a lot over the past 18 months, I see some of that returning. And I think about like my favorite images are those moments where there's just this this tiny snap of connection that happens maybe among strangers or on the street, um, and those things they really make me happy. 
and so to be out, you know, being able to sort of document that uh, is is always a pleasure. And so I think that's you know that's always in the plan. Um, but yeah, I'd love to you know continue to find um, folks that are interested in in my style of storytelling and and um, getting out and seeing new things and connecting with new people. You know, those are the experiences that I think really make me feel like I'm I'm part of the broader world. Mm, right. I think uh, you are not just documentary photographer, but you are documenting life, right, of people. And uh, it's not something that you can just carry around your iPhone. It's something you need uh, more insight and also your own way to capture life, what's life now. And that's the independent mysteries. That's the way you're looking at um, connection, disconnection. I really think it's interesting that how you capture, how you see the world. And I think your work is very unique. So yeah, good luck. And I can't wait to see your next one. Thank you so much. And again, thank you for, for having me on. It's such a pleasure. And um, always happy to uh, dive deeper into any of this stuff whenever you'd like. Okay, so hopefully I'll see you here back soon. And uh, you know, the kombu subject that you're going to feature uh, in Hokkaido, I, I studied a bit about the kombu and uh, it's a whole nother world to discover. So I can't wait to, to hear uh, what you discover there. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious, right? And uh, it's a bit of a trek to get to the Ishiri as well. So it should be quite the adventure. Right, and uh, you're going to have a lot of good combo too. So, yes, luck. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Right. All right, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics of guests, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or akikatema.com. Japan Needs is a weekly program and it's always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenjan, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.